You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to In Forum with the Commonwealth Club. My name is Mina Kim, and I am the evening news anchor at KQED, and I also host the forum program on Friday's forum with Michael Krasny. And I am so excited to have all of you here and so thrilled to welcome Dustin Lance Black. Please join me in welcoming Dustin Lance Black to In Forum. And I'm sure, as all of you know, Dustin Lance Black won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay for the movie Milk, which was about the life of Harvey Milk. He also did the docuseries When We Rise, chronicling the gay rights movement, and he also did the film J. Edgar. The list goes on. You probably also know that he was instrumental in overturning Proposition 8. California same-sex marriage ban. So he is a screenwriter, he is a director, filmmaker, and he's also an activist. But tonight we're going to learn a little bit more about a different side of Dustin Lance Black. This is his personal side based on the memoir that he wrote called Mama's Boy, a story from our Americas. And just like its title... It is a lot about his mama. <laughs> there is a lot of his mama. She plays a really central role. It's also very deeply personal in terms of how their lives and even who they are is deeply interwoven. And to start us off, I'm actually going to ask uh, Lance if he could read uh, from Mama's Boy, just to kind of get us started, give us a feel of what he's trying to communicate with his memoir. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Um, and I'll just say quickly, this feels like coming home. And to see so many familiar faces and, and people who we've marched with and loved and fought with, uh, it's, it really makes my soul just light up tonight. So thank you all for coming out. <clears throat> Prologue. A hot, gauzy morning in the late summer of 1987. That was the first time I ever laid eyes on the streets of Los Angeles. I was 13 years old, but looked 10 at best. An agonizingly shy Texas boy with eyes like water, hair like the sun, and a tanker truck's worth of secrets. I was jammed in the back seat of my mom's massive yellow Malibu classic between my little brother Todd and our stinking cat, Airborne. My mom said we were on the move. Others would have called it on the run. Days earlier, my family had packed up what little we had of value and vanished without notice from our lives in the Lone Star State, leaving behind my middle school in San Antonio and our Mormon church in the Randolph Ward, heading west. My mom was behind the wheel, her hairspray stiffened curls resting on worried shoulders as she worked the hand controls to speed up and slow down her beast of a car, a colossal artifact from a former life that now had to be wrested into submission by a woman who walked on crutches, her legs in braces, her spine fused and held together with metal bars hidden just beneath the scars that ran the length of her body. My big brother Marcus sat up front beside her. 
His hair was just as long as hers, but kissing a black leather punk rock jacket covered in pins and buttons that shouted obscenities my mom had miraculously, if not willfully, grown blind to. He had a map spread out on his lap. We were lost. We were scared. But in good Southern Mormon fashion, we kept our terrors to ourselves. Here's the thing. We'd been taught our entire lives that places like Los Angeles were filled with folks who traded their souls and salvation for fame, booze, drugs, cash, cars, heterosex, group sex, and dirty, filthy, faggot sex. Los Angeles was the embodiment of an unfamiliar, exotic America that we'd been warned to avoid. Liberal, often coastal, a place for sinners and moral relativists. For our ragtag family on the run, passage through this city was a test of spiritual strength. So we plugged our noses in back, Marcus did his best to navigate up front, and my tiny runaway mom rotated the hand controls that turned the gear that pressed down on the gas pedal that she hoped might propel us to safety. Two hours later, Marcus and my mom finally spotted the entrance to the five freeway heading north. The terrain grew steeper, and we headed into the hills over the grapevine, a stretch of highway out of L.A., where the snarl of traffic gave way to golden grasses, a reservoir lake, ranches, and a meadow filled with wildflowers. These were more familiar sights. This felt more like home. My mom looked up into her rearview mirror, found my eyes, and with all of her mighty love and warmth, sent me a strong, silent message. You're safe now, my Lancer. I took a breath or two, pulled out a pen and a spiral notebook, and wrote a letter to a girl back in San Antonio. She and I had recently participated in a one-act drama competition. She'd played Eve, I'd played Adam. Her mom was our drama teacher. I described Los Angeles as the second gayest city in the world. It wasn't a compliment. I was already fairly certain that San Francisco was in first position. (laughs) Thanks to AIDS hitting the national news when old Hollywood heartthrob Rock Hudson fell out of his closet and into his grave. Since then, even the news shows in Texas had started offering up images of emaciated gay men, most in San Francisco, but others in New York, and Los Angeles, dying terrible deaths thanks to their, quote, lifestyle choices. So yes, it seemed that San Francisco was closest to hellfire, but I was fairly certain Los Angeles wasn't far behind. I suppose I felt it necessary to let someone in Texas know I'd survived our journey through this foreign land. But as we reached the top of the mountain, something in my God-fearing heart stirred. And I looked back toward the city. It was calling to me. If I'm being honest, it had started calling well before we set out on this adventure. If Los Angeles was dangerous, I was curious. How true were all the stories I'd heard? Did people there really do so many strange things to their bodies, their minds, and to one another? Did they really make all those movies and TV shows I'd fallen in love with on the rare occasions we were allowed to watch them? And the most dangerous question of all, did the nation's current teen heartthrob, Ricky Schroeder, 
with his golden hair and ocean blue eyes, actually lives somewhere down in all that chaos? That question and all of its invasive roots and sticky webs lingered longest in my mind as I watched the city glimmer and shine in the morning sun until it slowly disappeared behind a veil of blue-white smog. Lance Black, reading from Mama's Boy. Did you, when you set out to write your memoir, plan to write about your mom? Or is that something that emerged in the writing process? What was it at the very beginning? This was, um, there were a couple of times that either agents or publishers had said, would you like to write a book? Let's get a book written. Uh, Once after we all, many of us in this room, made the movie Milk, and the Oscars happened. Um, and then, and then again, when so many of us in this room got that Supreme Court case, uh, to overturn Proposition 8. And both of those times I thought that's kind of looking backward and that's a, a pat on the back book and that sounds incredibly dull to me. This came from conversations with my mom. Um, like, as the book says, my mom, was uh, paralyzed from polio from age two. And you learn much more about that in the book. But uh, it meant, the, and, and by age six, my father, uh, who was Mormon, had vanished, um, probably to inch closer and closer to a fundamentalist style of Mormonism. So it was really, I came into the world, and by six years old, it was, uh, my little brother was two, I was six, my big brother is ten, and we're raising my mother as much as she's raising us. But my mom was also incredibly conservative, wasn't she? I mean, she was a child born in a very uh, uh, conservative area in Lake Providence, Louisiana. Uh, she was working for the military. She's Mormon. I mean, the deck was stacked when at six years old, I discovered, boy, I've got a big crush on that boy down the street, and that's not going away. But we always had to figure it out. We always had to find the bridges between us. And it wasn't always easy. But I felt like... Finally, for all the wrong and difficult reasons, there was a purpose to a story that I had that I'd been holding. There was a a reason to share the story of me and my mom. I'm really a supporting character in this book. That's the honest truth. It starts with her. It tells her story. It tells the story of a woman who was courageous and curious enough to reach out to people across the political divide and find common ground, including with her own son. And it felt like a message that is necessary right now. As you call it, a story from our Americas. Just And, and it talks a lot about it. You, you show and tell through personal stories ways to try to bridge the divides in the U.S. But before we get to that, I, I did want to talk a little bit more about who your mother was and also who you were, because we know you now, right, as this person who was an outspoken advocate for gay rights. You're somebody who gave an incredibly stirring speech at the Academy Awards when you won uh, the Oscar for Best Screenplay. But you were an incredibly, you'd describe yourself as a painfully shy kid with no friends and who wanted to basically disappear as much as possible. 
That's true. Um, I mean, some people in this room also know me as the guy who stays way too late at the mix and has fallen down a couple of times. All right. <laughs> the, uh, and, but that's certainly not the kid that you're describing. And that's, I, I bet there's also people in here who can relate to that feeling of knowing that if anyone finds out about who you are, that, um, in my case, I, was well aware that I was uh, being compared to a murder in church on Sundays. They were beaming in the Mormon prophet who had these messages that compared homosexuality to murder. Uh, I knew what happened to murderers in the afterlife. Uh, so that felt bad and dangerous. I, I knew very clearly where that gay people did not belong in the military my mom was so proud of. Uh, and in Texas, we were, you know, criminals. People like us were criminals. So jail, probably the medical community, we would be subjected to electroshock therapy or at least conversion therapy. I mean, there was not a hopeful future for gay kids. And um, my response to that uh, is not a unique one. I decided to shrink and to hide and to try my best to disappear as so that I could avoid bringing shame to myself, and but really to my family. Um, and, um, you know, those micro injuries to your soul that you, that are inflicted every day you remain in silence, uh, start to add up. And sure, I, like many, uh, considered dire solutions to that. Yes, you considered suicide when you were 12, I think you wrote. And, um, but I think the reason you and your mom were so close had a lot to do with the fact that she too was somebody who felt shunned. Can you talk a little bit about just kind of how she moved? I mean, you mentioned that she was paralyzed, that she used crutches, but can you just describe her body and how she moved through the world? Sure. So she, when when polio affects different different people very differently, and, and, and she really, it didn't take her life, uh, but it got just about as close as it can and still survived. So it got her up to the chest, um, uh, she she had lost some movement in her arms and hands, but she was able to regain that up at Warm Springs, Georgia. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, there was something happened in the family and in, in the community uh, where, um, well, someone, I'll just, I'm ruining the book in certain ways, but fine. Uh, someone <laughs> absconded with the money from the March of Dimes that was being run by the local Southern Baptist Church, and now my mother could no longer afford to be at Warm Springs, which is very had a gentle philosophy about how to treat polio patients. And she was put in a Shriners hospital, which was trying its own methods that leaned more on the scalpel. So that's when um, they started cutting on my mom. And uh, they don't ask permission. They just wheel you away. And, uh, and, and it's all, it was all experimental. People were trying their best, uh, but she had scars that ran the length of her body from cutting away muscles. So that made her look different, uh, very different. Um, and, and trying to fuse bones and muscles. And eventually they did a surgery where they just implanted truly just steel bars on either side of her spine because it had begun to twist so much. And it sort of worked, but it never quite stopped the twisting. It did mean that she could walk in this incredible... I, I, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone walk like my mom did. She refused to be in a wheelchair. She should have been in a wheelchair. And, um, and so she walked like a pendulum. She had two crutches, and she would just push them forward, swing them forward, and then swing her whole body under them, plant her legs, and then do it again because um, she wanted to be as upright as possible. So, uh, And then she had a neck brace with bars that uh, attached to uh, 
this leather strap around her chest until she was about 17, 18. And then that came off. And then that was the miracle with her. I mean, she was gorgeous. And I think I'm, I think I'm speaking objectively. From here to here, you would never know. So my saucy, flirty, and this is one of the discoveries of the book, very flirty mom, just started to do, I guess it's the equivalent of like 1960s tender. She would just take, she had these like little portraits. Yeah, these portraits made, and she would write letters to the army soldiers in Vietnam, and she would send her pictures, and she always got pictures back. And she collected them, and she had her, she had a little a little booklet and she saved all of the pictures of these super hot guys. Like <laughs> we had the same taste and I called it, I called it her golden book of boys. Uh, but sadly, and I've read the letters that you can tell when they ask if they can meet, uh, when they come home, she would stop writing. So she was, she was in her way. Like you suggest, she was hiding, uh, who she was yes. because she thought for sure that if the photograph was framed in wider fashion, she wouldn't get return letters. Well, I think you're right, objectively speaking, that she was beautiful. You have pictures of your mom in the book, and she really is truly a beautiful woman. Um, And you write about how neither of you was a particularly good fit for the world and how that played such a role in your closeness. I've already got me Like, I'm sitting here (laughs) crying. (laughs) Yes, it's true. I still feel like that about myself sometimes. Yeah, which made me realize and feel why it was so crushing when she didn't, for lack of a better description, respond appropriately or the way that you would have liked her to when you came out, which wasn't Mm -hmm. even really you coming out in this um, way of like, Mom, I have something to tell you. No. It was in a moment when she was basically disparaging the don't ask, don't tell policy of President Clinton, not because she felt like it was discriminatory against gay people, but because she thought she didn't want what she considered degenerates in her, her military. That's right. Do you want to share a little bit more about that story? She, that I mean, I didn't want to come out to her. I was terrified that I would lose her, and we were so close. I mean, uh, I, 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 I know I was the closest son to her, um, and, and in a way, I was co-parenting our, you know, I, I just slipped. I mean, our son, my little brother. And, um, oh God, it's such a hard one. It was so much easier to talk about <laughs> things when it's other people. Um, the, uh, it was Christmas. Exactly when, when people ask me advice about coming out, I say, never do it at Christmas. It's too dramatic already. And it was Christmas. <laughs> Christmas night, and she is, like you're saying, going on and on about don't ask, don't tell. She was very angry about it, uh, and this is what we do. We just sit up all night talking. She was in my bedroom. She was sitting on the bed. I'm sitting on the floor next to my suitcase, my back against the wall, and because I'm not disagreeing, because I knew better than that, um, she just takes my silence as agreement, because I, I, we would debate. I would normally just debate her on things, and... Um, and she goes on and on, and I just remember uh, praying. And, you know, I, at that point I wasn't praying often, but I was praying that night. Uh, not, to, um, not to let a tear fall. Because I know my southern mom, a good southern mom, can read a tear like tea leaves. And I knew that if one fell, that was it. I was going to lose my mom. And, um, and it did. It fell. 
and she knew. It just was silent immediately. And uh, I just, I do remember looking up into her eyes and seeing the pain in her eyes. Um, and, and she finally asked, um, all she asked was why. Uh, why would you choose this? And I took a big, long silence. And for only the second time in my life, I really saw her. And I saw her legs, uh, what was left of them, and the braces. And I saw her crutches uh, leaned on the bed behind her. And I did something that I only ever did once in my life. And I said, why did you choose those? And it was, understanding began there, but it, certainly not acceptance and that would be a long road for us. What you found was um, it was through her hearing the personal stories of other people when she visited you yeah. when you were graduating from UCLA Film School. So you came out to her when you were 21, and then shortly after that you were graduating. I guess it was about six months or so. Maybe. Yeah, it was like... Because it would have been Christmas and then... A six months that felt like years. Um uh, I mean, stop me if I go on and on because I'll just tell stories all day. I mean, I got I got Southern in me. I was just in <laughs> Texas, so I'm drawling up here. The um, uh, but uh, it was I'm we we just stopped talking uh, in any intimate way those six months, and that was the only time in our lives that we didn't talk, talk, talk like two, three times a day. Um, and uh, do you want me to tell that little story? The little story uh... about about her meeting my friends. Sure. All right. I've told it before, but if you, uh, the, uh, it's really the greatest, I learned in one night, the greatest storytelling lesson and political lesson of my life that I, I, that I think is, um, uh, it holds, this lesson holds so much power. Uh, and it starts with an absolute cop-out. I, my mom arrives, and I have not told my mom that so many of my friends are gay and lesbian, Right? including my uh, <laughs> my college roommate and best friend Ryan here in the front row. He was there for this. Um, and, um, and I also have copped out because I haven't told my friends that my mom didn't accept me because I didn't want to admit that. I didn't want to talk about that. And I didn't want him to demonize my mom and, you know, all of that. I just didn't want to talk about it. So she comes in. And they, I, I go into the kitchen and we're making just like terrible spaghetti with sauce out of a can. And, uh, and everyone's drinking a lot of wine. It's a graduation the next day. And my friends start to assume that she accepted me. This is like early nineties. Like Ellen wouldn't come out for years. Like this, my mom was like a, a saint, like the gay saint in their eyes. And so they start telling her all their stories. And, I mean, in the early 90s, a lot of the kids who ended up in L.A., they weren't all in college. I mean, a lot of them were still kids that just had gotten kicked out of their home, and that was a really safe, warm enough place to go. And so they're telling those stories of rejection, of not talking to their parents, of the missed Christmases. And my mom, in her good, southern, genteel way that they're not reading accurately, is just nodding. Mm-hmm. 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 I mean, I had the things that she heard that night. I won't go into the details, but as people got more comfortable and more drunk, I think she learned a lot about how lesbians do it. I think she, I, I think she also, I think she learned about gay male hygiene. <laughs> 
And I'm just, I was just horrified. Um, and uh, she also met uh, that night uh, this young man who I had a big crush on and, um, and who was paying me no attention. He was, he was a little bit older than me, a graduate student, and he just could care less that I was alive. And I, after everyone left, my mom had me sit down on the couch next to her, and I could already tell she was brimming with tears, and I, I, I thought perhaps those tears were anger, uh, frustration, uh, that I'd set her up for this. And she turned to me with those tearful eyes, and she said, I met, I met your friends. <laughs> Great. <laughs> she said, I met, I met one young man in particular, a, a graduate student. I said, oh, yeah, I know exactly the one you mean. And she said, well, I had a long conversation with him, and I did tell him that I thought he ought to treat my son a little bit better, and that when he finally does take you out, that he ought to pay. <laughs> and she wrapped her arms around me so incredibly tight that night, and it was the very first time in my life that I knew my mom not only loved me, but loved every piece of me. And it's the thing that sticks with me in all of the work that I do, whether it's political or whether I'm writing a screenplay, and that is my friends didn't know that they were walking into a fight, so they didn't bring politics or facts or policy or the Constitution or the law into the conversation. They didn't even think to. So because they didn't, she didn't dig into those things. Trenches didn't get deeper. Warfare didn't begin. They did the extra step just by, without even thinking about it, of, of bringing these stories that illuminate the Constitution, that illuminate the facts and the science, personal stories. And my mom looked them in the eye and showed the curiosity and the courage to actually listen with her heart. One night, personal storytelling erased generations of homophobia in my mom's heart. One night. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to write this book, which was as much as we believe in places like San Francisco and New York, and know that the facts and the science and the Constitution and the law are on our side. We have to do a little bit more work than that and find the stories that illuminate them and bring those to our neighbors so that we can start speaking to this in order to change these. I hear that. I, I feel like... I understand how personal stories have that effect. In journalism, in so many ways, that's what you do to try to help people understand the policy piece that you're about to tell as well. But there, it does feel like these days that the differences, the political differences, for example, have become so stark that at this point, it's almost less that you're dis disagreeing on politics or policy, but that you're actually disagreeing on values. I often find when you're trying to tell stories, you're trying to show that we have shared values here. Mm -hmm. But I think if you were to, I mean, if you have a situation where you have a president who want, who's banning transgender people from the military, banning Muslims from the country, taking infants or toddlers from sure. migrant parents, and you're standing with this person, there's a feeling that that we no longer share the same values. Well, and I, so how do you get past that? I, I, that's what the last third of the book was for me. So, um, I mean, there comes a time when, um, 
I was ruining the book, but um, <laughs> I know, you yeah. know, it was actually no, very no. challenging to come but, up with questions because the way you tell stories, you have like a, it's almost like a punchline or you, you really re- a reveal at the end. So to, to ask you to share some of my favorite stories out of your memoir would be to give away. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> you guys have already bought the book, haven't you? The, uh, the, uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, I, at a certain point I lost my mom and, um, I mean, it's great that I just told that last story because here was the challenge and it's where I realized I had been far less than courageous. And this is the real, this is the tough stuff. This is the tough part. Uh, but I thought my mom showed the courage and the curiosity to f- get on a plane and fly to Los Angeles. I didn't think of it that way at the time. But it must have taken courage for her to do that and to walk into that room with a bunch of people she'd been told her whole life were criminals and sinners. And I realized, I, God, I'm so emotional this day. I realized I hadn't shown that same courage. And so the last part of this book was me going back to Texarkana, Texas, to sit with my family, who I know all voted for Trump, and stand by that. Oh, not this one. That's my cousin Sandy. But your my, that's my cousin Sandy. But your sister did, and your brother. Yeah, but she's a wild city woman. She's a wild. Yeah. So, no, it's okay. You're allowed to interrupt. Correct me anytime. Meant much of my family in in Texarkana voted for had voted Republican most of their life. The, um, and then the more challenging thing to do, even than that, was to travel back to um, Salt Lake City, Utah, and to see if I couldn't find common ground with the church. Now, here's what it means. It means I had to walk into those rooms and uh, hear things that were difficult, uh, listen to things I didn't want to hear. I had to go into those rooms that, with the same curiosity my mom showed my friends. And I'm telling you... What does become clear once, you know, we would start talking uh, politics a little bit, me and Lynn, but we put that aside. After a bit, we're like, let's just not talk. Let's put that aside a little bit, right? And in Texas, it was much more fun because we could have whiskey. In Salt Lake City, you couldn't, we didn't have that advantage. <laughs> or coffee, you know. But I swear to God, with, um, with Lynn, uh, which is in the book, um, as soon as we got the politics out of the way and we agreed, we're going to talk about us, not this, not your voting record, not who you're standing with, because you might have done that for many, many reasons. Um, once we started talking one-on-one, I mean, he started, I started talking about this cute guy I started been dating at the time in, in the United Kingdom and how much money and time it was costing me to travel over there and do this. And he whipped out his phone, I'll never forget it, and he showed me the girl he was dating at the time who was gorgeous, but she also had him traveling all over the world. And I realized in that moment we were doing it. We'd broken through. He was comparing what was in his heart to what was in my heart. That was success. Seeing we built a bridge. Equal. And you know what? I mean, it's not bullshit. Guy, I'm sorry this is on the radio. You can beep that. The, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, gone, it's gone deep. I mean, I, I now have this connection with a family who I had become disconnected with uh, that I love. And, and, you know, in Dallas, we had a signing in Dallas. And, and, 
And my entire, I'll get tear, my entire side of my, of the family from Texarkana showed up, including Lynn, who then posts it on his Facebook page that he showed up and he said, I know I'm going to get shit for this, but I'm posting it anyway. And I know we're not going to agree on who he's likely going to vote for in 2020, but we've started making, uh, some, some progress. And I've, by the way, I, I, I disagree with the idea that we don't share values. Uh, I, this might be controversial in this room, but whether I was in, in Salt Lake City or in Texarkana, Texas, when you keep it personal and you get to the root of it, the thing that, that, that's, that unites us is that every single one of those people, those Mormon, you know, people from the 12 apostles or my cousins and aunts and uncles in Texarkana, we want our children's lives to be better than how we had it. We want our family safe and we want our kids to grow up strong. We disagree on how to get there. But if we can get back to that uniting principle, we might can figure out ways that we're not hurting each other in the meantime. If we keep aligning ourselves under R and D, pretending that somehow in this magnificent universe that we've all landed in with these eyes and these ears that allow us to see it and hear it and feel it, that the highest plane of existence is whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. That's fucking insane. But it's going to take courage and curiosity going both directions to get us back to a place where we can have those conversations and also to understand that there are those who benefit from division and fear, yes. who are profiting from it, who are drawing, gaining power from it, and those aren't the people we're going to convert. Recognize them, know who they are, and as we say in Mormondom, dust your heel and move on. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. What is a what is a slight against the South that you hear from folks on the coast or a stereotype that angers you the most? Well, I, you know that they're stupid. I think that's the big one. Um, uh, and I and I don't think that's true. And, and I certainly think that when it comes to emotional intelligence, it's really not true. Um, and, um, and so, and I find that offensive. I find it offensive when I hear my coastal friends and progressive allies and friends saying that they're going to go back to their home states like an invasion to vote in 2020. And I say, I, I, by the way, yes, go back, but not as invaders. If you go back, you better go back to have some conversations. You better go back to utilize that most powerful stage there is in the world, and that's the dining room table. You better use it. And, and, uh, and then, you know, but I also don't disagree. Go back. It's time, to, it's time to go back to some of our hometowns, I think, and to have those conversations. They're tough. They hurt. They're hard. But it was hard for my mom, too, and she did it. Back in... Um... 2009, after after you basically made a promise um, at the Oscars that very soon there would be equal rights federally, um, you basically said that you gave up filmmaking for a time to really take seriously your activism. The pendulum is starting to swing back. Some of the gains that were made are being lost. Mm -hmm. You've got a really you've got a lot of projects going on right now. 
do you feel like, and you're doing the activism as well. I mean, you've been vocal about the Equality Act, um, which is trying to amend the civil rights law to try to specifically grant rights based on sexual orientation as well. But do you feel like you can make those same sacrifices again if if you need to? I mean, you're a dad now. You've got You've got a lot going on. God. <laughs> um, I, uh, I mean, it was, there was, there was a, you know, my mom, the day after the Oscars ceremony, uh, I, uh, set me down and in a very Southern mother way said, you know, um, you made a very big promise on that Oscar stage. And I said, yeah, you're right. I did. Uh, and, um, and it was a, it was a, Scary promise. A lot of people, uh, in fact, many, if not most, of my heroes in the LGBT movement said that what I had promised, which was full federal equality, namely with marriage, uh, it was too soon, it was too much, it would cause a backlash. And so I was feeling heat. Um, But my mom said, Lancer, I raised you to know that a promise is a sacred thing. And... uh, it's another one of those like conservative values that fuels me in my progressive battles. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I had made a promise. And so I set us, I really put all of filmmaking in second position and my work suffered for sure. And then at a certain point I just stopped. Uh, but there was, there was also because of the design of that case, there was really, it was such a small group. It was me, Chad Griffin, who's now at HRC, um, Bruce Cohen, who made milk, we made milk together, Rob Reiner and his wife. I mean, it was, so we didn't have time to do other things. And in fact, Chad Griffin had said, if we do this, you're probably not going to have time, to me and Rob Reiner, you're probably going to have to stop making movies for a bit. Um, But that was the design of that Mm. case, and it meant... It was all hands-on for fundraising, for outreach and education, to work to rebuild the coalitions that I felt we had lost uh, over time that, by the way, I, I still wor- I worry we're losing again right now or have been, particularly Why? in the run-up to 2016, I think we have. Um, Why? How? Why do I feel that way yes. or how? Well, I think that there has been... This is really changing gears, but I, I, I think that there has been a very effective campaign of division. I mean, some of it we know where it's coming from. Uh, some of it, uh, and I, I hope this doesn't sound too conspiracy theory, but anyone who's on Twitter or Facebook knows that if you post something uh, backing up your trans brothers and sisters out there, you get a slew of weird profiles with lots of numbers at the end uh, trying to get you to abandon your trans brothers and sisters, trying to make it the LGB, Right? That was playing out in so many different ways. You saw it, you saw it happening effectively to divide progressives from other kinds of progressives. You saw this thing taking shape that I've called the discrimination Olympics. Whereas people, as they investigate their differences and the things that they deserve, which is the noble work, but then the sense that you get some sort of prize at the end if you can, if you can uh, make it clear that you've been treated the worst. And that's not how it works. Hmm. You know, it's not how it works. That is noble work to discover who you are and to raise your voice to say you ought to be treated equally. But the prize is when you can lock arms. The prize is building coalitions. The prize is building coalitions with, yes, people who might have, uh, have it better than you. 
who might have like, some privilege even. You sound like Harvey Milk. <laughs> well, I'm a student of Harvey Milk. I'm, not, I'm no Harvey Milk. Um, but I, I think, but those are the coalitions that make winning elections for people of diversity possible. Certainly, I mean, that's the nature of being a minority. If you're a minority, you can't win alone. But we've forgotten, we forget in history that lesson continually. It is, it's a cycle. It's a pattern. You see it happen. We come together and then we sort of drift apart again or we succumb to, uh, folks who are very, very good at creating fear and division of difference. I mean, Trump is very good at that. And his people are very good at that. Being aided by Vladimir Putin, who has proven himself to be a genius on the internet and sowing division between us. I mean, we, I think in the run-up to 2016, we, um, we fell for it. Many people fell for it. And we can't fall for it again. Um, and, but it takes work. That was the work we had to do for marriage. Uh, we had to make sure we were rebuilding those coalitions. Um, and I think it's the work that we obviously have to do again to get the pendulum of progress moving forward again. It is continual work. I mean, I hope I can keep making movies as we work for the Equality Act because it's not a small group of us anymore. Mm. Thankfully, we have a huge army of people <laughs> who, who want to get that done. Um, uh, but I, I think, you know, one of the most common questions I get when I go out to universities to speak is from young people who are so passionate and so ready to fight, but they want to know first what they're getting into. And they say, yeah, but for how long? How, how long do I have to do this for? <laughs> and I always say, here's the good news. You get to do it forever. <laughs> it's never done, right? Our gains have always got to be protected. The nature of, of, of defending those rights is a, is a continual, it's a forever thing. And that's beautiful because it feeds the soul. I'm preaching to the choir. I've seen you people march. <laughs> so I, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm not ever going to be done. I'm not giving up. But I would like to make a movie or two in the meantime. <laughs> well, what do you think of um, what do you think of Pete Buttigieg or Mayor Pete, the uh, the candidate that's being the presidential candidate that's being called the uh, the most viable openly gay yeah. candidate for president, perhaps in U.S. U.S. history? Well, I I I, I can only sp- uh, now I've met him. I was in Dallas uh, for a book event, and he was in Dallas for a speaking event, and then and we met up. And uh, I can say I, I was surprised by how impressive he is in person. Uh, you know, and, and part of that's just he, he's, he's the first candidate that's ever younger than me, which has been a real <laughs> shock. Um, uh, but, you know, he, 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 has, he seems to have a real um, steely core, and uh, he stands on a firm foundation. So I was impressed by that. Um, I think that he is absolutely fulfilling... Um, you know, the, the speech that Harvey Milk gave in San Antonio, Texas, where I'm from, where he says you have to elect gay people because it gives a message of hope. Well, he's certainly doing that. I will say it's May of 2019, <laughs> and I'm going to keep listening. And I also think that he's not the only Harvey Milk in the race. I think there are a lot of people running right now who come from other communities that who have not been represented uh, fairly, who have not had the power they deserve, who have not been treated equally, who are running, and their own communities are finding hope in that. And guess what? The LGBT community should also find hope when a woman of color is running. Because it... 
So I, I think I know it's a lot and it's a whole lot of people, but I, I feel awfully lucky right now that there are so many Harvey Milk-esque candidates in the race. Mm. I was given the signal to ask folks to think about questions that they might have for for Lance. In about five minutes, we'll go to Q&A, and um, there will be people in the room with microphones to take your questions when you're ready. I wanted to talk just a little bit about becoming a dad, because... Well, first, you're, you've really shared that whole experience, um, your experience of having a son through a surrogate with, with your husband, Tom Daly, the UK Olympic diver. And becoming a parent really changes you, I think, or gives you a whole new perspective on, on yourself, on your own parents. Yeah. And I'm just curious how having Robbie Ray has has affected you? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I mean, in every way possible, as every parent here knows. Um, and then in the most surprising ways, um, I, I most certainly have a new set of eyes on the world. I think it's... I mean, if... I'm on this curiosity campaign right now. Uh, it's what my mother taught me. It's my inheritance from my grandmother to her, to me. I also think it's the thing that makes fear and division wither. It's hard to have division and curiosity share a bed. So when you say you're on a curiosity campaign, you mean when people are are coming at you with well, that came up of messages. Sure, that came up. I mean, when I when I went back to the United Kingdom with my husband and my newborn son and I'm just like, you know, goo goo gaga crazy yeah. in love trying to figure out how to do a feeding schedule, realizing how much I can actually get done with no sleep, all of that. I, I come back to the cover of the Daily Mail saying, gay dads are not the new normal. And, uh, and a picture of me and Tom. I was like, wow, holy crap. I thought we were past this. Like, didn't they notice Elton John did it already? <laughs> like it's, um, and, uh, and yeah, you have to... You want to be angry at first, but you have to confront it with curiosity. You gotta. It's the only way to neutralize the divisive uh, sort of fear and anger that's out there right now. And so, so that meant asking. I challenged myself. <laughs> I did a I did a podcast with the BBC, and I said, "Invite all of them on. Invite all of them on. Whoever said that, if they're anti-surrogacy, if they're anti-gay dads, let's have them on. Let's talk." I'll tell you, we found common ground on that show. We found it's, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. It just works. If you ask people questions, it's disarming. It's not what they expect. And if you get to the root of where that comes from, sometimes you find out they just want attention. And then you just cut them off your show. Like that's not, but that's like not, if, but often you find out they really mean it. And you want to know where it comes from. And you learn. Like I learned uh, a lot about surrogacy which was, you know what, there is reason for concern. We do not want what's happened to women in India to happen in California. We don't want camps of young women being paid nothing and enslaved to have wealthy people's children. And these were concerns I didn't know about and I learned about because I was curious. Mm. You know, I, uh, you, you, we also had an opportunity, it created a space and an opportunity to talk about uh, 
what the experience of gay dads really is and to get to one of the core fears from people, which was that there would be no women in, uh, in our son's life. That was a big part of it that we got to. That was one of the biggest concerns. And I was like, you don't know gay men. Like we love, <laughs> there's women everywhere. We just don't sleep with them. The, uh, and so, but truly, it's the same as with the Mormon church. I mean, we did this work. I did, in the book, I'm ruining everything. But in the book, you're I, not really. I go Actually, back to the Mormon really church. And I swear, after days and weeks of talking and going to events together, at one point, one of these elders in the church takes a hold of my hand. We just left the Christmas spectacular, uh, the, 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 the Mormon tabernacle Christmas spectacular. It's like the Mormon Oscars. And he, and he holds my hands. This is well after Prop 8. And he says, Brother Black, I have a question. Do, do you ever think you might want a family? I was like, oh my gosh, this is the guy who made sure that Prop 8 was funded. And he's asking me this in a genuine way. I said, yeah, of course. I mean, you've kicked me out of the Mormon church, but you can't take the Mormon out of me. I want 12 kids, like, <laughs> now. Um, and, uh, and he got a little tearful. And he said, you know, Brother Black, what, we, we just have a concern that gay people wanted to break down marriage, to deinstitutionalize marriage. And I said, I said, No. That's not it. Like, for not every gay person wants marriage, just like not every straight person wants marriage. But for those of us who do and have kids, we just want to make sure that our kids are equally protected. And I want to have a lot of kids. I want to make sure they're safe. And he literally just kept holding my hand quiet there. And we were both a little tearful, realizing, wow, that was a big misconception. That led to a big proposition. Yeah, <laughs> it just and broken bread earlier. <laughs> if we'd have, no, I mean, honestly, these are real. This is what it is. This is the problem. We're not talking to each other. And it's not easy. It is hard sometimes. But, uh, but you know, I, I asked that man. I said, well, you know, maybe you could say a prayer for me that I'll meet a, a, nice, a nice young man and we can have a little family. So to this day, I think that a Mormon elder... Uh, from Salt Lake City, Utah, delivered Tom Daly to me. (laughs) Well, we'll go to audience questions now. And uh, if you need a second to think about it, I do have one other question, which is one of the reasons I ask about what it's like and what effect it's had on you to be a parent is because I also think it changes your perspective on your own parents or the way your own mom may have parented you. And maybe that's the question. Or the other thing that I wonder, especially with a parent who's a, a parent that you've lost, what are the moments when you miss her the most when you're with when you're with Robbie Ray boy you're really trying to get the waterworks <laughs> <aren't you? laughs> uh, almost like constantly because I um, oof. you know I had I didn't know the questions to ask and um, and uh, because I lost so many people in my family uh, I don't have anyone to ask I don't know who to ask and so I constantly want to know did I do that is this normal? Is this okay? Um, you know, and, and I, I, I don't, I, I feel like it's, it's I miss my mom so very much every time I look into my son's eyes because he has her eyes, I think. And so, um, yeah, it also makes me wonder just how she did it. 
right? How do you have a two-year-old, a six-year-old, and a ten-year-old, and you can't walk? How do you raise them? How do you, how do you change my little brother's diaper while your middle son has opened up the crayon packet and is just drawing on all of the walls? How do you do it? And I don't remember. I don't remember. And I would give anything to be able to ask those questions and get answers. Hi. Hi, how are you? Hi, gorgeous. You know I already love you, and I am I'm I just can't wait to read this and fall more in love with you again. Every story that you've told tonight has had a surprise ending that I didn't expect. And I, I'm gonna confess something to everybody in the room. I have never listened to an audiobook. But is this an audiobook? Yeah. I want I'm going to listen to you read it because it's gonna be life changing. Uh, but my question is about your mother. She sounds amazing. Do you wanna be my agent? This is awesome. <laughs> Um, I always know that my mother, I'm pretty sure, always knew that I was gay. And I think a lot of gay people will tell you that their parents knew. Do you think that maybe your mother had suspicions while you were growing up? And then maybe she even pressed the issue about gays in the military and other issues to see if she could get it out of you? No, what was wrong with her? I don't know how she didn't know. I literally had a collage of... I had a collage that I cut out and taped up of Joey McIntyre of New Kids on the Block on my wall, right? I mean, come on. And then when I thought that that might be too, like, telling, I covered up with a Paula Abdul poster. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. You know, the problem, not to poke too much fun, the problem is we were also Mormon. So, you know, we're all taught to sing show tunes and ballroom dancing, and we're supposed to suppress our masculinity. That's like... So if the more feminine you are as a Mormon man, the closer to God you are. So, you know, it just wasn't, hmm. we, I wasn't in an environment where um, she would have, I, she just never, she said she was completely surprised, which is baffling, as baffling to me as it is to you. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's another surprise in the book to many people, but I wasn't the only gay son in my family. And that's, that's a big turn in the book for those who decide to read it. <laughs> and that was the biggest surprise, not me. Hi. Um, I actually grew up in southern Idaho, surrounded by like 95% Mormons. Yeah. Um, so I, I was not myself, but I kind of am very, very familiar with that. Um, <clears throat> and grew up in the 80s during the AIDS, you know, everything. So right. I kind of um, experienced a lot of the same stuff. I was wondering what your thoughts are right now with the Mormon church and the, um, you know, kind of the more recent turn that they took in terms of, you know, gay families and, and all of that. Yeah, they're having revelations. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> it's about time. I, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm heartened, but certainly not happy. I, uh, I, they have so much further to go to get to a place called acceptance. Um, but uh, to see that the new prophet, and let's note there's a new prophet of the Mormon church, and has very quickly moved to say that uh, gay couples are no longer apostate, which was the old rule, which was a new rule, and that they'll baptize the children of gay couples is a step in the right direction. Um, that they no longer approve of conversion therapy is a huge step in the right direction. Um, so, you know, they, they are starting to look, they, they've caught up with the Catholic Church and they're starting to, to make progress. But for a church that only 10 years ago really laid claim to the most anti-gay church, they were in competition with Southern Baptists, I guess. 
for the far right and most anti-gay to already be in that place. I think we just have to encourage them to continue to have these revelations. Uh, that means continuing to go out there and engage, holding them accountable. I think they like to be held accountable. I'm not easing up. I'm out there for the next three days. Um, and uh, there's a lot more that they need to do on LGBT issues and uh, for women's equality in that church in particular. Um, it's a problem. So I want to keep the avenues of communication open, but my next show is uh, an adaptation of Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer, which holds that church accountable for how it's treated women for hundred and some, some years now. Do you still consider yourself, I mean, do you consider yourself Mormon? No, I drink way too much coffee and have way too much gay sex for that. Yeah. Not... Do you, yeah. do you, it's okay. do you still consider yourself Christian, believe in God? No, I, you know what I have, I, I will take this position that I came to an understanding with my mom and with my uh, family in South about, I love, I think Christ was pretty awesome. Christ seemed like a really cool guy. I bet we would have really gotten along. I bet he would have been marching down Market Street with us. Um, I have a big problem with a lot of Christians. Hmm. So I'll take the Christ. I'm not sure about Christianity right now. I don't think that's in a very healthy place. I don't think Christ would be, feel very good about Christianity right now on this planet. Not the one who I've met. Um, so no, I, I, can't, I can't call myself a Christian in this country at the moment when that means that you support things that are so unchristian. Um, but uh, I, I absolutely have a spirituality, um, and that does run deep for me. Is that more recent for you, or has that... No. No, it's been... It just has been looking... It's been find, trying to find a home for a very long time now. Um, I love that story of how when you labeled a box where you were storing Christmas stuff with an Xmas, you know, like the shorthand oh, Xmas, and your man. mom was really concerned. Don't do that around that like a good Christian away. mom. Xmas, they hate that shit. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Lance. So thanks so much for speaking today. I remember um, hearing you speak and meeting you briefly at the Harvard Kennedy School in 2009. Oh, wow. I spoke and asked yeah. you a question about Christianity as well and loved your response then and now also. Um, my question is about writing. There's a lot of stories that I'd love to share with the world, perhaps in a book, from helping out in City Hall in 2004 with the same-sex marriages here to competing in the Olympics recently, kind of like your husband. And the thought of writing a book just sounds so... So, like, so much work to me. So how do you get started in the writing process or research process when you're writing a screenplay, and what recommendations yeah. would you have? <clears throat> well, you sort of answered it there, which is I always start with research, and I, always, I, I try my best um, to go to firsthand sources. It's why I've reached out to so many faces in this room to ask questions. I try not to lean on other people's books because then you're also trying to get through the filter of another author. Um, and that's also fun. And you discover things that haven't been discovered yet. And those sparks are going to keep your energy and your love of this project alive. So I think that's a wonderful place to start. And then I'm a heavy-duty outliner. So particularly for a book where you're going to fall in love with every sentence, because you have to. You have to invest yourself in every paragraph. In movies, you really just have to make sure the dialogue is right and that everything else is clear. But it doesn't have to be literature. But if you're writing a book, you better outline it, I think. I think you'd be wise to, 
Because what the problem that happens is you start to hold on to all of these things you've written, like your precious little children, and some of them have to go. <laughs> Probably a few more needed to go. It's very thick, this book. But the, uh, it's, uh, so that outlining process and, and whittling it down to really the core of what it's about, not just what happens, but what is at the core? Uh, what is it, what are you trying to say with this? Uh, and I'll leave you with this because I think it's what I, it's what I challenge my students to do when I'm teaching or mentoring, um, is yes, bring me a true story, but first of all, tell me what it's about. Not backward looking, not nostalgia. How is this story going to communicate something that's going to be like a little chaos bomb that you're going to throw into the future a couple of years? And it's going to break things up just enough that they can come back together in better fashion, in better form. How are you going to change the future with a story from the past? What's it about? What's it saying? And then start telling me what happens, but not before you know what it's about. That'll be a great focusing tool. Hi there. Uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for telling your story. Um, it takes a whole lot of courage to do that. And... Um, Second of all, thank you in advance for answering this question because it might be a bit loaded. Go for it. I'll do my best. <laughs> so I think it's manifestly clear through your story as well as mine, as well as millions of others, that certain religious systems and generational generations' worth of household values yeah. kind of lend themselves to these predispositions um, for example, as though it's black and white as to whether or not it's okay to be gay. Right. And if you have one piece of advice on how to communicate and kind of break through to a parent, a loved one, etc., who is strictly at odds with your sexuality, um, what would that be? Well, I get asked that a lot from youngsters. Um... You can tell I've been in Texas because I'm saying things like youngsters. <laughs> um, um, the um, I, 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 my advice is, um, and I think I, I, this is from talking to a lot of folks who have both succeeded and not succeeded. This there is it doesn't always work. That's the horrible, sad truth. Kids are still being kicked out of their homes um, just for coming out to their parents. What I do ask is that. Um, they, I do tell them to avoid Christmas. I do say that. But then I say, at, you're going to likely hear things that are going to be very hard to hear, that are going to be horrible, and it's going to hurt. But go into it thinking, my number one goal is to leave the avenues of communication open. How can I do that? It's hard. Uh, but if you set that as a goal going in, not the goal being I'm going to get the biggest hug and it's going to be all acceptance, but I just want to make sure I can still talk to my parent, maybe not tonight or tomorrow or even next week, but soon, that it, there's at least room now. There's a space you've created for understanding. The thing that I've heard from parents, this is uh, from some of the work uh, I've done with um, uh, PFLAG and um, Trevor Project, Parents who weren't accepting at first, but something that helped them, and I, again, this isn't universal, none of this stuff is, was when some of the kids said, or it became a revelation that, oh, they're not different today. So letting your parents sometime know that, hey, the only thing that has changed today 
is that you know. I haven't made a new choice. There is no new path. I'm just letting you know something that's always been with me. Um, and that's a real revelation for a lot of parents. And it also makes helps, I, from what they've said, it helps um, them feel like they haven't lost their child, um, which is uh, one of the big fears. Um, so, uh, I mean, those are my big pieces of advice. Uh, and then last but not least, I do for the young folks who contact me, I do make sure I say, please have a support system in place, especially if you're concerned. Have a friend, have someone to talk to, know who that next conversation is going to be. And if you don't have someone, we get them one of the hotline numbers so that they're ready to call. Hi, Lance. I love the story of your mother riding the soldiers. What happened to her book of pictures? Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, um, the uh, so at a certain point, it was before I came out to her, but it was one summer. um, We were going through all of her treasure drawers is what she called them. And it's the first time I ever saw it. And I'm flipping through it with her, and she's telling me about each of them. And I just, and I'm, I'm just, I'm trying not to show my keen interest. <laughs> and she's telling me the stories, and they were, she remembered them all in such detail. And oh my gosh. And then she, she gets to the very back page, right? The last page in this thing that's jammed. And I swear to God, like the cutest, most handsome, tall, dark, gorgeous guy. And I'm like, Wow, mom, he looks like a movie star. Like, like, who's that? And she just said, Lancer, that's your father. Who I didn't know, because he had left. Um, so uh, what was interesting to me is, after she passed away and I went back through her things, especially for the research of this, I found it, and that picture was gone. So I think she finally let go of him at a certain point which was very healthy for her. But it's those hot, hot, hot boys are all sitting on my desk in London now. And that little, <laughs> and that little golden book of boys is mine. Hi. Um, I, I'm super terrified because um, I'm by no means out. And, but San Francisco's not my city, so it's okay. But um, I just wanted to ask, um, how do you find stories that call to you? And when you find those, how do you find the best way to tell them so that way the message gets across and so that way you're not losing any part of the story as you do that. Oh, God. I wish I could do all those things. Um, at our best, we do as writers. Uh, I, I mean, I think I try to trust my gut. Um, if, if something really resonates with me, then know that there's probably something in there. That first impression of a story, when you first hear it, remember that. That was a really good piece of advice that Gus Van Sant actually gave me. Because I, I he gets submit, all these scripts get submitted to him. I'm like, how do you know? And he's like, well, I just remember I the I remember my first read. And he said his, what he did as he was directing is he, in the mornings he would kind of meditate on that feeling he got the first time he read it, um, and that's the core of it, right? That's the heart. That's 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 what's un, going to be universal is if it's effective here in your heart. And so I I drew I've drawn on that lesson. I try to remember each day that I go back to the pages and as I'm outlining or writing or rewriting um, that I go back to that core feeling, that thing that made me feel like I had to do this. And also, something I need to learn to do better, um, knowing that you sometimes get to a place where you should probably cut it free. You've realized in your examination of it that it's not 
really there and to let that project go and to let your heart guide you back to the things that really are moving and passionate. That's going to work in two ways. One, if you, if you do it right, that feeling you have is going to be shared at the end of the day because you're going to pull it off. Number two, if it's a book or a movie or all these things that are so incredibly difficult to get made, if you love it that much and you've anchored yourself to the thing that you believe in and you love that much, you're going to survive all of the no's, which you're going to hear tons. It doesn't matter how successful you get. It's going to be a slew of no's, and you're going to wade and wait through all of them for that one yes, which is all you ever need. Your gut, your heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is a tradition here at Inforum where in the last minute you have to answer this question. Oh, boy. What is your 60-second, so you have to do this within 60 seconds, 60-second idea to change the world? Oh, you're like, that's easy. I mean, we've been talking about that the whole time. Uh, I, I want uh, people who exist in different political camps or in different tribes to get together and to have dinner with one another, period. Dustin Lance Black. Well, thank you for being with us tonight. Yes, Dustin you. Lance Black, everybody. Thanks to you as well for joining us here at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. The book is Mama's Boy, A Story from Our Americas, and I think your notion of an audiobook is right. I mean, he this it's a, he's a storyteller, so there are a lot of surprise moments in this book that he sets up, just like takes you along. Really, really Thank well. You. Thank you for this. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thanks for having me. Good night, I everybody. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you. That was awesome. That was so.